welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Ron. And this is our review of My Science Project, starring John Stockwell, Fisher Stevens, Danielle Von Zernick, Raphael Sabarge, Richard Mazur, Barry Corbin, Ann Wedgworth, and Dennis Hopper. Directed by Jonathan Bethuel, released in 1985 on a eh, budget of about a million, million and a half, give or take. Gross $4.1 million at the box office, but certainly not the hit that Touchstone Pictures thought it was going to be. Still, you you can't really complain about that kind of box office. I mean, especially considering like the biggest star in it is uh, Fisher Stevens. <laughs> I, I think Dennis Hopper well, might Dennis have Hopper, some but Dennis say. Hopper's barely in the movie. Yeah, but you know, I'm telling you, watch those those trailers, man. You'd think he was like an integral part of the thing. <laughs> his two <laughs> scenes, they they milked the hell out of him. I guess it was Dennis Hopper paying his taxes or whatever at this point. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that, there, there's a part of the '80s where he just was like, whatever, I'll do whatever. But uh, you can have some fun with those. But yeah, hey, man, I'm gonna tell you though, I remember watching this. I obviously too young to see it in theaters, but this came on like one of the you know the Showtime weekends, or whatever. And I remember taping this thing and just watching it over and over. Um, I don't know if my brother had rented it and that's how I got exposed to it, but man, there's something about this movie that has just stuck with me for all these years. And it's honest weird. So when we were kind of putting together our loose trilogy of back to school movies, I was like, well, all right, look, you know, we need, we need like an action sci-fi thing from the eighties. Cause that was a, the, all the rage back then. And I mean, you know, we could do back to the future. That's kind of obvious. We could do weird science, but that's a little uncomfortable and weird for me. Uh, so I was like, yeah, let me throw out uh, my science project. And oddly enough, I, I was blown away. You told me you'd never seen this before. I am completely new to this thing. I've never seen it. I'm not even sure if I ever heard of it, man. It's definitely one that would fly under the radar. Like you would have to have sought it out. But when if you look at it again, you look at like the posters and you see how it was marketed. They tried to market this thing like it was Ghostbusters meets Back to the Future, and it is anything but. Like it, it is not that at all. It's much more akin to. Something that would have come out of like the 1950s, like the blob or something like that. It's almost like Night of the Creeps ish in some way. It's just not nearly as fun. Yeah, I could definitely see that it's got a little bit of a Night of the Creeps element, but it also kind of reminded me of just like the whole thing that we're going to discuss later where they basically go on an extended hunt for the Viet Cong just made me think of like missing in action. Oh, you know, yeah, there there was a little bit of that. I can't lie to say as a kid that the whole uh, we get a bunch of M16s and we start, you know, blowing stuff up in school wasn't uh, a cool thing. Not that I'm advocating that in school, but the idea of like you go in your school and it's become a, you know, DMZ for Tyrannosaurus Rexes as a nine year old. That was a bit of fun thing to imagine to play against it. This game, well, this movie plays a lot like the levels of a video game in some ways, really toward the end in particular. But I think the things that stood out to me about this were I, I knew when I saw this not long after I saw Christine for the first time uh, unbeknownst to any adult in my life that I was watching that and I so I was like oh John Stockwell okay so I know that so I was like oh man okay
okay, this guy's going to be cool. And then I saw him in Top Gun, and I was like, this guy's going to be awesome. <laughs> and then I never saw him again. I, I know he has directed a lot of stuff. He actually directed a Kirsten Dunst movie I happen to really like called Crazy Beautiful, and he's done a lot of TV and stuff like that. I think that's kind of his thing now as he directs. But I thought this guy was going to be huge, and he wasn't. Which is weird, because he's like completely fine at this kind of thing. There's nothing immediately wrong with him so i don't understand why he just kind of faded out because i mean he's definitely not he does he's not given much to do in this movie but he's definitely not like an active problem for the movie either you know what i'm saying he's yeah i mean fun to do but he's pretty good when he you know decent comic timing decent chemistry with his co-stars you know uh, not nothing to Nothing to write home about, but definitely not a, you know, um, Sam Worthington level uh, charisma void. Nowadays, I think he would be like the prime candidate for a guy that would be on like a CW show or something like that. And then would bounce around to like another one somewhere else and will wind up on like a Netflix show. And he would, he would, I don't know. I, I could see this guy kind of being just your standard stock white dude that you can put in a lot of different roles. I mean, he plays kind of a motorhead in this one. He, you know, and Christine, he was a jock. And then, you know, he was a friggin' fighter pilot that lost his mind and <gasps> Top Gun. And he's done other stuff, but. But, um, you know, nothing with a ton of range, because you don't ask a guy like this to do a ton of range. You say he didn't have a lot to work with. I don't know that he had a lot to do with it if he had, Ron. But I thought he was fine. I always thought he was fun. And I thought he was cool because that friggin' Pontiac GTO he's slinging around in in this movie is just as iconic as about anything else next to the Spencer's Gift plasma ball that is the MacGuffin of the film. Yeah, it's, it's pretty funny because my dad has... Uh, had a uh, 65 GTO when he was in high school and later on in his adult years he got a 65 Pontiac Tempest and a bunch of uh, assorted GTO uh, options to turn it back into a because the GTO is just the Pontiac Tempest with a different trim pattern some different headlight taillight louvers uh, you know a different hood etc etc take the take the extra piece of chrome off the side. Um, so he got all the stuff that you needed to like turn it back into a GTO or a bunch of the stuff you needed to turn it back into a GTO, but he never got around to it. That's pretty cool, man. I, I knew one guy in town that had the, you know, the manifold blower thing that, you know, would, would dump the oxygen straight into the carburetor like that. Mm-hmm. And I remember after seeing this movie asking him, like, what does that do exactly? And he tried to explain it to me, but again, being like nine years old, I was like, I don't, that was language I don't understand. It's kind of like going to the mechanic now and they talk in, you know, foreign language. I don't know what they're talking about, but I don't know. I always thought that was cool. There's, there's so much like, stuff here that could only exist again in this time period because this was a movie that was made very much on the cheap and it got made because Jonathan Bethuel, we should say, wrote The Last Starfighter, which was a big thing in 1984. That's how he got this was they were like, okay, so you got anything else? And he's like, yeah, I got this you know, thing and I want to direct it. So they let him direct it and that's pretty much kind of his one shot at things. He did a few other things, but uh, nothing much. Um, I, I didn't recognize, you know, outside, I mean, Barry Corbin's been in a million things. Uh, speaking of CW, he ended up on a CW show. So um, I think Ann Woodworth was always kind of a character actress and a lot of stuff. We know Dennis Hopper, uh, Raphael Sabards, I only know from like the, uh, uh, the Revenge of the Nerds flicks. I think that's kind of his other claim to fame. Uh, and then there's Fisher Stevens, who I, 
up until this point, I didn't realize was the same guy in Short Circuit 2 and Short Circuit. Like, I didn't realize it was the same person. And I, I think his career has been built out of doing horrendously offensive, <laughs> stereotypical accents of people that he is not. <laughs> yeah, this is, is definitely the most uh, stereotypical... I saw Saturday Night Fever 37 times and I modeled my life after the Volta. Oh, kind of guy. <laughs> Completely, I, I, I'm not yes. sure where this falls on the uh, Andrew Dice Clay continuum, but <laughs> if the Dice Man was around, he was definitely part of this performance. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think he was. And yes, that's a good pull to talk about Dice. But I mean, I do think we need to tell people what this movie is because, again, I think, like a lot of the audience, I'm in, I'm going to be the minority. You're going to be more like our audience. People have not seen this. So tell people what My Science Project's all about. <clears throat> Mike Harlan just wants to get out of high school, leave his desert California town, and pursue his real passion in life working on cars. In fact, that's really the only thing he's interested in, which is why his girlfriend dumps him. But Mike's now got two problems. One, word got around fast that he'd been dumped. So your book queen, Ellie, basically blackmails him for a date so she won't be something called the senior class spinster, which can't be a real thing. <laughs> two, he's got to have a dino supreme science project to pass his final class, which is taught by the ex-hippie Bob Roberts, Dennis Hopper, basically playing his character from Easy Rider, who somehow lived to sell out in the 80s. Mike decides to deal with both at the same time, taking Ellie with him to an old Air Force junkyard where he comes across a mysterious item he plans to pass off as his project. The gizmo, as it's called, is actually the power source of an alien spacecraft that we saw President Eisenhower order destroyed in the 1950s after it crashed in the Arizona desert. I was extremely unclear about where this took place, whether it was California or Arizona. Uh, you're probably right. It was Arizona. Uh, it, the only reason I know that is there are many close-ups of license plates that say Arizona. Ah. So. Mike and his friend Vinny have no idea what it's capable of as they hook it to various power sources, which causes time to skip ahead and items to appear and disappear. They talk to their geek frenemy Sherman in the library, but he's not all that helpful other than giving them the idea that time travel is theoretically possible according to, according to the literature. Thinking Bob Roberts will know, Mike, Ellie, and Vinny take it to Bob, whose grading papers late at the school. He surmises it's capable of creating time warps, man. Bob hooks the gizmo into the power outlet and is absorbed into the energy lights of the gizmo. The trio steal dynamite from Mike's dad's hardware store to blow up the power lines outside of town, thinking they stop the spread of the gizmo's power consumption. When they are later arrested on suspicion of this, Ellie returns to the school to grab the gizmo, but Sherman interrupts, plugs the thing back into the power supply again. This blacks out the town yet again, allowing Mike and Vinny to escape the police station. They return to school, meet up with Sherman, and go inside to rescue Ellie. The gizmo has warped in all kinds of strange things from various times. Gladiators, mutant warriors, Vietnam, <laughs> the Viet Cong, and a Tyrannosaurus Rex, all in the gym. Mike, Vinny, and Sherman acquire weapons and battle through these crazy mazes, finally reaching the gizmo. Mike saves everyone by resetting it, repeating what he did to turn it on the first time, but is vaporized just like Bob. However, he returns shortly thereafter. As the kids try to figure out what to tell authorities, Bob returns via the time warp, having relived his glory days in the 60s and gone to the future. He's arrested, for some reason, but tells them to get rid of the gizmo. Mike and Ellie drop it back off at the junkyard, and when Mike's car stalls on the way back to town, they wonder if it's the gizmo again. However, Mike reveals he's out of gas 
and he's no longer ashamed to walk back to town with his new nerd girlfriend, even though his rep as a motorhead will take a hit for the breakdown. As they walk the road back, we see the gizmo's electric pulse across the taillights, leaving us to wonder if the adventure is over or just beginning as credits roll. Yeah, let me let me solve that to never be continued like that. <laughs> you never know. So, and I do think that again, and there's there is so little behind the scenes material about this out there. Like, there's no interviews, there's nothing. So, I'm only throwing out what I believe is just supposition, having watched this movie for all these years now. Is that and having seen the director's stuff in Last Starfighter and this, he really loves like the monster craze sci-fi ufo craze of the 1950s and i just feel like he was just paying a nod to you know invasion of the body snatchers the blob all that kind of stuff from from that era at the end but we got to talk about this opening man because this is part of the movie i never remember and i always forget that dwight eisenhower gets pulled off a golf course to go you know after we've heard the radio call of a ufo crash uh, after being chased um he's got to go see the ufo um or something that's supposed to be a ufo and to tell uh max to get rid of it and the you know, the, the air force guy who just yes sir you know they just tear it apart and i don't know it's it's fun to to look at and see this uh this setup for this whole thing because it also lets you know how cheap this movie was cuz they couldn't show us the UFO, like even dotting across the screen. Yeah, they definitely found some old junk and painted it up to look like a UFO, which is, I guess they spent all their money like animating lightning and electrical <laughs> pulses and stuff later. Because uh, mm-hmm. I have to say that's that's some of the stuff that looks good. Uh, the eighties were clearly a, a, a glorious time for like hand drawn lightning effects in films. No, yeah, it's really it's like rotoscoped or something. It looks really nice. It may even be more advanced than that, but it it does look good. Some of the you know, it's a lot of practicals too, and they tend to hold up. But I don't know. It's just something that always takes me aside for this. But I think you've got to pay attention to know that if you're not down for that kind of movie again from like fifties, the thing, sci-fi nuclear ufo craze then this is not going to be your movie because if you can't go with that then it's going to be a problem for you and if you can't go again with the idea of you know eisenhower being so not curious as a human being as to say yeah just get rid of it I, I mean if you know anything about eisenhower from history he probably would have been the last guy that said get rid of it he'd be like oh let's let's uh co-op that and use it that was kind of eisenhower yeah um but he, he was the president that warned us about the military-industrial complex, so maybe he was concerned that this would fall in the hands of those uh, evil war criminals at uh, McDonnell Douglas or Boeing or whoever. <laughs> You're all right. Maybe that was it. He, he could foretell the future uh, from this thing. He, uh, we'll get around to talk about the, the future in a minute because there's a, a great drop line from Dennis Hopper about it in here. But, yeah, you know, we go from there and, and like – as if to hit a button on a remote control, we flash forward to a high school that I'm certain has doubled for a lot of high schools. It looked like the high school in Can't Buy Me Love. I'm certain it was shots of Sunnydale at one time or another in Buffy. It's been in 90210, I think. Like the, the front of this high school where it was shot is you know, a lot of things. And I wanted to ask you, 
I don't know that I've seen another movie, even a teen movie, where all five of the main characters show up in one scene together and we meet everybody in the science class. We meet Mike, we meet Vinny, we meet Ellie, we meet Sherman, we meet Bob. We Everybody gets a line. We meet everybody in one damn scene. Yeah, that was wild to me because usually you get like staged introductions. You meet your hero, maybe you meet a sidekick. If you meet the teacher, so on and so forth. But no, they're just like hey, everybody's here in this very in in a very confusing classroom setting. Because when I took one look at that classroom, I was like, well, that's clearly they're clearly in college because that's a college style auditorium. They don't have auditorium classes in high schools, do they? Dude, in my college, didn't have that many auditorium <laughs> classrooms back then. There was like one building that had them, and it wasn't the science building, kids. And so, yeah, I was blown away by this. And I, I, I never paid attention to that little fact until this time. And I was like, man, there, I mean, it is like speed through. We got to meet everybody, and everybody has like a characteristic that you need to know about them, right? Mike, clearly the gearhead because he's got grease all over him. He's wearing a cap that's, you know, parts of a car. Vinny, clearly, as you said, has watched a lot of Saturday Night Fever and is, that is his life now. He is a very, very skinny uh, and more tan John Travolta uh, look going. Ellie is the archetype, I will say, for the hot girl. If we just take her glasses off, we would realize how hot she was. But she wears glasses and has a retainer, so we don't know it. And then Sherman, the obvious nerd. And then what I can only describe as they must have hired Dennis Hopper. And he came in and said, I don't I don't know what you wrote, but here's kind of my character and here's what I'm going to do. I can't prove that again, but just knowing Dennis Hopper's reputation, I bet he wrote every line he spoke. Yeah, that that would definitely make sense because he 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 kind of feels like he's just doing his own thing. Um and uh, one of the things I noticed almost immediately was like I think Sherman was supposed to have been a fat guy. But they yeah. cast Raphael Sabarge because Vinny keeps making all these fat jokes. And I'm like, he weighs probably the same that you do, man. Maybe a little less because he's taller. Yeah, <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know what that was all about. I was like, is it, I mean, he's supposed to be like the fat nerd joke or whatever. But yeah, he keeps calling him that, but not really. You know, it's I don't know. It's uh, it's. It's funny to watch that dynamic, but all that rolls into the parking lot where we see Michael get dumped by his girlfriend with the mink wheel. And I mean, I was like, Hey, if you don't, if you can't appreciate a mink wheel, then you don't deserve love. You know, I've never had, uh, anything like that on the steering wheel of my car. I think I had one thing that was supposed to keep it from getting hot in the summer that, that wasn't entirely successful. But other than that, I've always, uh, my my steering wheel has always gone unprotected. I mean, of all the things he would customize on her car, why would the steering wheel? Like that's the I know. And the funny thing is, we never see her car. I'm like, that looks like a wheel of like a friggin' Eldorado Cadillac or something. Like, what's this chick driving? Yeah, she's she's driving uh, Huggy Bear's old ride, I guess. <laughs> it, it doesn't help too that she looks like a 28 year old stripper. Like that's the other problem. Let's be honest. <laughs> Uh, the first time I watched this movie, and I watched it a couple times for the podcast, first time I watched it, I thought, well, clearly this is college, right? Even with all the talk of, like, yearbook and stuff, and I was like, Fisher Stevens is, like, 30 friggin' years old, man. <laughs> Our hero's wearing a hat because he's trying to hide his balding, 
his male pattern bald. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, nobody in this mo- nobody in this movie is under twenty eight, at least from here. I, I can't yeah. say that for sure. If they're not, if they're no, not they were definitely all in their in their twenties and beyond. You're you're good to call that out. I and mean, I think that's a trope, right? But sometimes, like, you, you can still kind of look like a kid. Like Michael J. Fox looks like a kid. Like a high school kid in in Back to the Future, like I could buy him as a high school senior. That's fun, but yeah, no, none of these other people. Like, yeah, especially the guy that Crystal is like dumping Michael for the blonde. I don't know who the dude is. He's not named, but she's telling him like Cosmo said it was today. All that, and I'm looking at that dude. I'm like, is he like your like handler or something? Because he looks like he's forty. Like that dude is is he a teacher? Like that that would have been another thing. I don't know, but yeah, that's, that, that's all. Movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is a completely different movie. But yeah, it all sets up the whole bit where, and I can say this having been the yearbook editor a few years, Ron, in high school, that if you're putting together that kind of information this late in the school year, you are way behind. <laughs> like the book has got to be printed by this time of year. Like this is supposed to be March and April. This is happening in, and I mean, they're close to graduation here. And I'm like, if you're still putting the book together by then, girl, you are way behind. Like that, that stuff, you do that shit in August. Okay. So you worked on the yearbook. I didn't. I didn't do anything hardly in high school. But did they have yearbook headlines? We, we did. Like we had like little superlatives, like things, and it got voted on by the class. We didn't have senior class spinster, which that's definitely something from the fifties, but we had like, you know, most likely to succeed and most likely to be a comedian. And, you know, it's, we had, you know, fun stuff like that, but we, we did, we also had people like do a quote, but you couldn't like, it was, there was a real strict set of parameters around what you could quote, you know, and all that stuff. But nobody like asked you like five questions, like how many times you saw return of the Jedi and you know, all that kind of crap. Like, you know, it's, it was maybe what your favorite hobby was, what your plans were after school like that. Yeah. The seniors got that, but not everybody got that. But again, you did, that stuff in the fall. You didn't do that in like right before graduation. Do you remember what your uh, yearbook quote was? No, I do not. <laughs> I'm sure it was terrible, so I have no idea. Mine was, quote, <laughs> mine was a quote from the Metallica song, Nothing Else Matters, because I am nothing if not on brand with myself. <laughs> that is so perfect. Yes. No, I couldn't tell you what mine was. Um, I couldn't even tell you what the themes of the yearbooks were, but I, I remember spending many a day and night working on that thing and, and doing that stuff. And so I appreciated the Ellie's thing, but I, it was only years later in high school. I was like, man, she was like really behind on that or whatever, but it's all the point to have them meet, but we, they know each other. That's the other thing too, is we are dropping into a world where all these people already know each other. They already have some relationship with each other. Cause to the point that like, they all call each other by last names. They don't even call each other by their real names. Right. So it does feel kind of like adult college or something. It's, it's almost like watching an episode of Friends. If I had to guess who that guy was she's talking to, I think it's that um, hated F-word uh, Matuski. Is it that guy? Oh, yeah. That, the the guy. guy who's not like a, a character that's listed on the IMDb in the three T- anonymous jocks. Yeah, tell, yeah, the the jocks that wear the the Star Wars masks. Which how you got that cleared in 1985? I guess George wasn't paying attention, but at that point, but yeah, but they're also the, I don't talking know about Return of the Jedi. Why does my George Lucas sound like Mickey Mouse? They're also talking about uh, how many times did you see Jedi? So maybe Lucas was like, any publicity is good publicity. 
<laughs> I guess so, right? Yeah, but the whole point is that Mike has never even seen it. He lives under the hood of a car. You know, that's his whole thing. And I, I had friends in high school that were, I wouldn't call them gearheads, but they were definitely guys that like spent a lot of time working on their cars, stuff like that. But they weren't oblivious to the world around them. And that's why I say, when you meet these people in the classroom, you now know everything you need to know about all of them. And that is an amazing screenwriting feat and attempt for a movie that when you first meet these people, they will not change the entire time. The only one that changes at all is that Ellie takes her glasses off and is cuter without them. And that's all we know by the end of this movie. She also takes her retainer out at several points, which brought back horrible memories for me of having oh, a retainer. Yes. No, I, I will. Uh, that, that was more horrific than anything else in this movie for sure. So, uh, but I, I do love her elaborate retainer, Jay? Yes, I did. I had braces in the whole bit. Yeah. yeah, I had braces for like five years. Did you yeah, uh, I, carry around that little thing in your pocket to put your retainer in at lunch so you wouldn't like accidentally throw yes. it away? Yes, it was a it was a purple case. I have nightmares about that thing. Yes. Did you I also used well. to put uh, a scope in it to clean your uh, retainer? Yeah. See, I would have loved to have had scope, but my mother was in love with Listerine, so that's what I had. So oh. but every now and then I get the minty kind, so it was okay. But yeah, yeah, those things were horrible, and, and I'm glad I didn't have to wear the gear though, the headgear. I'm, I'm thankful I didn't go through that part of braces. Yeah, neither um, did I, I. I just had the rubber bands and all that other stuff. But, but yeah, we yeah we meet everybody. We know what they're doing. But I love her elaborate scheme for trying to get this guy to ask her out on a date so that she can avoid the senior class spinster thing she takes the distributor cap off of her car and blocks traffic out of the high school so that he will get out of line just instinctively and go oh it's a car problem i must go and address it well she is there with the hood up i mean surely he noticed that but if he could go around her why didn't everyone else in the line just go around her Thank you. I mean, I guess he didn't like pass her exactly. He just pulled up alongside of her. So maybe there wasn't a way to get out. But you would think like five people at that point would have gotten out and like pushed her car out of the way and then gone on by. I mean, her little Oldsmobile couldn't have weighed that much. <laughs> so, so, but yeah, he, I mean, th- that's that whole setup. And, and, you know, he's just been dumped. He sees, you know, I guess Matuski making out with his, you know, stripper girlfriend or whatever, uh, in the car, you know, several links back. I think it was like a Volkswagen Jetta or something. And he's like, yeah, sure. Why not? We'll go ahead and go on a date. Yeah. You know, and no parents, you know, I'm like, well, there are no parents in this whole movie. Okay. Except for Mike's parents later in the, in the flick. But it's all a setup because he has been called on the carpet by Bob in the class, though, about, hey, man, you know, I'm not trying to hassle you, dude, but you got to have something cool for your project, right? And he's like, well, I guess I'll go find something. So I love how just the old Air Force junkyard, basically Era 51's cousin, is just accessible from the highway somewhere out in the middle of Arizona. These kids are like, yes, got there and we'll just find some old, you know, B 52 part. And I'll put that together because I'm sure the science teacher will believe I created that. Yeah. It's weird. Cause the, he's like, you can't just, uh, Dennis Hopper's like, you can't just restore a carburetor, man. You can do that in your sleep. So what are you going to do? Pull a, pull like a Merlin V 12 out of an, out of an old, British fighter jet from World War II and drop it in your car. Uh, I mean, what's your? How is that a science project? That's it's not like engineering class. It's not shop. 
Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. I remember science projects. I mean, it was like volcanoes <clears throat> with baking soda, and maybe like you would get water to run by something and turn a light bulb on. You know, like that's that was about the extent of my science projects. I don't, I don't remember doing anything where like I had to do mechanical engineering <laughs> work to get a passing grade in the yeah, class. Yeah, or the, or like Ellie's thing where she's like doing experiments with like plant fungus and ultraviolet light. It's like. Just make a make one of those uh, volcanoes that uh, out of the baking soda, dude. Just you're you're going way too deep with it. Maybe make one of those uh, clocks that you, that you run with a potato. There you go, right? She could do especially. You, you don't get the sense that a girl like Ellie needs the grade either at this point. Like she's probably got that grade sewed up at this point. So the project is, eh, you know, that it's also the the detail of the projects that they're going around talking about lead me to believe your theory is like maybe at one time this was supposed to be college, and the studio said no, nobody wants to see college kids. We we need to see high school kids, so they rolled it back to high school. I don't know if that was the intention or not, but I could believe it because that was way too sophisticated. Yeah, and they already had the cast locked in place, so they're like, "Well, let's just we'll say everyone's younger than they are." Yeah, we'll just let's go with it. Nobody, if we don't mention it, nobody will know. Uh, except Fisher you know. Stevens is a chameleon; he can be any ethnicity at any age <laughs> at the same time, and he can offend everyone equally. Yes, that that is that is the goal. Fisher, can you do that? Yeah, babe. You know, <laughs> and he goes with it. So we we get the the whole bit. I do think the part in the junkyard is pretty good. Like the the whole like set design and the way they're doing all that and the when he finds the thing I will say like putting that together like the property people that did that like I'm sure you had no money at all and again you got up a Spencer's plasma ball and you decided well we just need something that looks like it could be a gun but it doesn't need to look like a gun but maybe it could be an engine but nobody really knows or just have a lot of cool lights on it and shit and do fun things I mean, I've always been fascinated by the design of that thing that it I, they put a lot of work into it for again for a cheapy movie like this. Yeah, that was the the biggest surprise is how uh, the biggest surprise to me was that it wasn't some sort of gun because that's a, or some sort of weapon because that's immediately what you go for for any of these kind of sci fi movies, right? It's mm-hmm. never like you know it's always like some kind of weird cannon from laser blast. It's never like oh look we found uh, you know ET's carburetor or <laughs> yeah. something like that's that. What I, that's what I ask you because Bob says this thing's an engine man it's a power plant or something like that but what the heck is the gizmo I I don't really know that we get a good sense of what it's supposed to be yeah um they, uh, I, I it's I think it's an engine maybe it's like kind of like maybe that's the way that they you know fly faster than light maybe instead of like flying faster than light they just uh you know like the time distortion field uh theory of that's in a lot of science fiction stuff um but yeah i i'm still not entirely sure what that gizmo is supposed to be i mean i i don't know i used to think like warp core you know out of out of a star trek thing i don't know and and the point is is that you don't really know and it clearly thinks for itself because as soon as it can get a hold of some power and when it gets a hold of Bob, it's like, Ooh, I, I like that. We'll conduct some power through you, baby. You know, and maybe all the drugs he did one time or another, like are good con- conductors. I don't know, but yeah, it's, I, it's such a strange thing. 
And on one hand, I'm like, well, if they over-explain it, it would just make it even dumber. You know, so I don't need that. But on the other hand, like, not explaining it at all and then having it do just such random shit that it does in this movie, it, I don't know, it leaves me scratching my head as to what exactly is this thing? Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty undefined um, throughout the thing. Maybe it's just like a car battery. I don't know. It seems to yeah. it seems to take what's a pretty standard you know household electrical hookup and turn it into a crazy display of power. So maybe it's some sort of like power amplification unit. I, that's when they hook it up to that car battery when he shined it up in the shop the next day and it just completely melts the battery in or whatever. I'm like, well, first, that's kind of amazing that that battery did anything for it at all. And then when they hook it into the electrical socket later, I'm like, man, if you go to Canada, you needed like an adapter. Like, how did you know that was going to work for, you know, the Martian machine? That's kind of amazing. Maybe it's like a universal, uh, one of those universal adapters that's got like eight different things in one. And he, he just picked happened to, to dumb luck guess the right things to hook it up because it looks like the nodes on a car battery. Yeah, it's as I was weird, or either that, or maybe it came from the predators that taught us how to build you know pyramids and stuff way back when. Maybe it's part of that uh, the series as well. It could be, but the point is, is when you hook this thing up to power, bad stuff happens, and of course, the answer to that is we've got to figure out what to do with it. But uh, it does warp them ahead, like. Vinny and Mike are trying to figure out what it is, and then they walk out of the shop and they realize they they're two hours ahead, but they don't realize it, you know, and they didn't know it, and so they've skipped the final, and you know Bob gives them a bunch of crap about it, and then he offers them what I think could have ended the movie immediately if we had just listened to Vinny. He said, "If you don't turn in something great on your your science projects, and you skip a final, you both get D's." I'm like, hmm, "D's get degrees, baby. You can go." Like <laughs> the the Motorhead Mike would have walked. I think I, he just. Didn't didn't hear that that's all i can i can think of yeah i don't i'm not sure why he stuck around uh, i think he would have taken it because it's not i mean he's got his career he's got his future sorted out and it's in that garage yeah. and Vinny doesn't have a future <laughs> no and maybe we don't want him to have one too we, uh, we, uh, we we've talked around it enough we should just talk about how horrible of a human being <laughs> Vinny Latello is in this movie. We've called him a knockoff John Travolta. Uh, how how would you encapsulate what this guy is and how on earth can he and Mike possibly be friends? Well, they're, they, they bonded over their mutual love of, of cars. Clearly. Because we see Vinny working in the uh, working alongside him in the, the shop and I, I and clearly they both love drinking and driving. Uh, they love yes. violating open container laws, which I'm sure there were even in the 80s. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they're both, uh, well, Mike not so much, uh, but Vinny is definitely a, a misogynist. So maybe they, they get along that way. Yeah, clearly. Yeah, they he has some interesting decor in his vehicle, we should say. Well, the thing for oh. me was when he was like, you know, in Brooklyn, I just would have punched her in the mouth. <laughs> we don't yeah, put like, up with that. And I was like, "We we Ralph Cramden now." <laughs> Brooklyn is still a you know, even Brooklyn in the eighties was still like not a place where it was cool to punch a woman in the mouth just because she broke up with you. 
It's what I say, man. This this movie is written by somebody who's obsessed with the 1950s, and maybe it was supposed to be then. And they're like, nobody nowadays wants to watch kids from the 50s, and they made him advance it. I, I don't know. I'm just guessing here, but it. I don't know. It seems so out of place, and he's such a weird character, and always kicking out like just random TV lines and stuff like that. But it's supposed to make him cool. The problem is, is at no time in my life, in the 35 years that I've lived with this movie, did I ever think he was remotely cool. And so I can't imagine anyone, anyone would. Because Mike is so much cooler than he is, just by being level-headed. Yeah, Mike is definitely cooler, and Vinny is clearly established as like a little slimy, well, little greasy weasel. Because he mm-hmm. has the shiniest, greasiest hair that I've seen outside of, you know, one of those 1950s movies or like a Brill Cream ad. Cause it's, he looks like, it looks like the uh, headrest of his car needs to be like oil stained. Oh, clearly. Yeah. This, I mean, it is jet blacked and slick and the whole bit it's, and he's got on the gold chains and the, you know, the deep V shirt and whatever. But yeah, it's, he's, he's supposed to be the comic relief. He's just not. And that, that's the problem. And not only you know what he's saying is not going to land well with a modern audience, but it's just not funny. Like he's just I don't know. There's something about the dude that's just not not good. Luckily, it doesn't completely focus and live around him. So then they make my science project too, like short circuit two, and build it around him. Thank goodness, because uh, you know Penny's <laughs> revenge would have been a terrible idea. Um, but yeah, they they all decide. Okay, we got we got to take this thing to Bob, who's. Man, I've done a lot of teachers. You work with teachers. You make grace papers at the school after 10 o'clock at night, ever. Like, most teachers that I know can't wait to get the hell out of that building at the end of the day. Yeah, I definitely know teachers who stay up grading till 10 o'clock at night, but they're yeah. at home, usually with uh, an adult beverage or five. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, I, I did love the, the humor maybe, of uh, him well, you know, maybe, trying to just the, the answers that were so ridiculous. Well, maybe Bob was hanging around so he could take huffs off of that nitrous can or whatever that can is that he's blue velveting. The the pure oxygen cans. But yeah, Bob's grading papers and hearing about Boy George inventing the H-bomb. And they bring this thing in, and of course he's obsessed with it because it doesn't show up on his spectrometer. It's it's putting off energy without heat, which is a, an amazing feat if we could pull that off. Like, that's yeah, that's pretty cool. And he's he gets obsessed with it, and then they get the lightning kind of stretching out, and it's almost like he's playing the accordion lightning uh, thing with the gizmo as it's plugged into the power source, and he's he can feel the world around him, and he's just, I don't know, Bob becomes a time traveler at that moment, and Dennis Hopper disappears for 70 minutes of the movie. Yeah, it's like an invisible theremin, almost. You know, yeah. you just play a Amer- uh, theremin by positioning your hands properly, and you move one hand to play the strings, and the other hand adjusts the tone. It, it's yeah. it's basically yeah, he's playing like ghost theremin, and then they drew some cartoon smoke wisps between his hands. Yeah, I did get a little like poltergeist off of that. Honestly, like I, I was some of the same kind of animation that would have come from that, which was a few years before this. So I could see where they they got it. I mean, and you know, Rick Baker among other people worked on this thing and tried to make it look somewhat respectable with no money. And Alan Howarth did a lot of the sound design stuff for it, and it did sound good. And the the few uh, creatures that made it past the editing room looked pretty good. But I, I know that they tried to make alien puppets for that, that what's essentially a cold open with Eisenhower. They tried to make some alien corpse puppets, and they just didn't look right. 
Yeah, yeah. There, there was not going to be the alien autopsy version of my science project. They, they went quickly in the other direction from that, which thank goodness because that would have been a bridge too far. And we haven't even gotten to what the movie's really about to do. But we're we're here now. So they they see it, you know, sucking up all the power. It creates a, I don't know, Wizard of Oz twister above the high school, which I guess is a time portal or something. Yeah, it's it, it creates the uh, the Ghostbusters. Thing. Thank you. Yes, that's what it is. It is the portal. And they have enough time to go outside, go to the hardware store, steal the dynamite. Oh, actually, Mike goes home, finds out his dad's got remarried to the Avon lady or whatever, so that's a shock to him. <laughs> then he gets a new jacket on or something, and they go steal dynamite, and they have enough time to race the power consumption out of town on those... Uh, power blocks to blow it up and the racing I'll say the driving scene done really well uh, almost almost as good as like some of the stuff in the Wraith which would come out a year or so later yeah maybe maybe the the Wraith team saw this and was like you know if we cut out all the crap about aliens and just kept the car this may be a pretty good movie and we got a lot hotter looking people. <laughs> like, yeah. like we just make the, like everybody in that movie is gorgeous. And so yeah, so and, and even we lose Clint the, Howard. Uh, say what? Even Clint Howard. You know what? He has a great set of hair. It's like if we took your beard and made it stand on top of your head. That's that's Ruckhead <laughs> in that movie. Okay. So I mean, he's an upgrade from Fisher Stevens because at least Clint, a- at least Clint Howard isn't doing like a really offensive accent and no. also playing. An ethnic stereotype that, you know, was already passe by the the 80s. You know what? Rughead would be like Sherman's cousin who lived in a different part of Arizona. Because both these movies are in Arizona. I like this. We have now made My Science Project and The Wraith part of the same universe. Cinematically. Like, this this works for me. I can go with it. Yeah, and uh, The Wraith's dad was um, the dude from Vanishing Point. Yes, right? So yes, it's perfect. It all it all works. Yes. So they, they run out, you know, caps to the dynamite, dynamite to the legs. Uh, good seed, good action. We blow up, you know, we black out town. And everything's cool, right? And we go back home and I mean within a matter of this all takes place in a day. Like we should mention, okay, this movie takes place on a presumably a Friday or a Thursday or something like that. And within moments Richard Mazur doing a really horrendous Nick Nolte impersonation is there to arrest Mike. They've already arrested Vinny. They already know who did the robbery at the hardware store. They know it was them that blew up you know, the whole town and considered there was nobody out there. That's, that's some hella police work, man. Well, that, that GTO sounds pretty distinctive. I mean, especially with those blowers on it. You can, you can hear that. And they do Who did they interview? The coyotes on the road? There was nobody out there. <laughs> no, it's a, if, if they were interviewing coyotes, it would have been a Plymouth Roadrunner. Oh, true, true. <laughs> <laughs> this one, they, they interviewed, I don't know, uh, goat herds? <laughs> yeah, some, there's something. I don't know. But it's it's. I think moving. I think a lot of it is they're just looking for an excuse to arrest Vinny for anything. <laughs> Because he's the closest thing this town has to like uh, a minority, so they know he's out there causing trouble. He's a big city greaseball, and uh, you know, preying on <laughs> on local single mom strippers. 
or, or something, right? I could buy all of that. Uh, there's also clear, clearly Detective Nolte uh, has something for um, Dennis Hopper's character and and, and arrest him for, like I say, no reason uh, at the end of this movie. But um, it's all about going <coughs> to, you know, they go to the, the station, we get some more, you know, comedy with Vinny and the, the female cop there. And uh, Mike uses his phone call to tell Ellie, like, you got to go get the thing, you know, go get it. And when she goes back, Sherman has been skulking around this whole time. We've kind of missed the subplot where he was spying on her and Mike, because clearly he's got a thing for Ellie. And he enlists the help of a bunch of jocks to, like, trash Mike's car with a bunch of shaving cream and stuff. So, you know, it's all messed up at one point before he goes 120 miles an hour down the highway. That'll blow that off pretty fast. And yeah, but so I think he, that shaving cream would have taken the paint with it. Oh, clearly, yeah, that car is damaged for for a long time. But uh, yeah, so that he's done you know his damage, but clearly he's been you know sneaking around the high school trying to figure out what's going on. So when Ellie goes to get the gizmo, he's like, "No, this is what they were talking about." And uh, like a complete moron nerd, of course, plugs it back into the power grid, and that's when all hell really breaks loose. Yeah, it's. It's pretty. Um, I, I gotta say, I do like those scenes where that device starts causing chaos. They they turned out pretty good. They look pretty that, good. It, it, it's at least a, a visual style. The third act of this movie, like we said before, turns into a video game at this point because once those two guys get back to the high school and they they grab Sherman and they're like, "No, you're coming with us," and they go in with that unloaded shotgun. They go through levels of craziness i mean man it was like the best haunted house a school could ever have put together <laughs> going through there i was that was really well done for as cheap as all of it was yeah and it, and it's yeah it basically becomes like the nintendo version of uh commando or the nintendo version of predator um, mm-hmm. except you know with vinny trying to seduce cleopatra i guess Italians have a weakness for Egyptian women. <laughs> yeah, there's that. You had the Neanderthal man that they affectionately call Barney Rubble. Yeah, uh, and then the Neanderthal man looked pretty good. That's that's where you can kind of see, you know, Rick Baker's influence. Yeah, they, they the, clearly, uh, again, yeah, the mutant guys that, that out of Mad Max, they look pretty good. Yeah, those mutants, the uh, post-apocalyptic hellscape world looked pretty good. looked pretty cool, actually. I would have liked... I think this movie would have been better if they'd had enough money to actually have these two goons travel through time by accident. Well, see, and that, and I couldn't find anything to verify that, but I think that's exactly what was supposed to happen in this movie, is it creates a time warp, and they are literally walking through all those places, but they had no money to pull that off, so they just stage it as if it drops all that crap in the high school, like it did that vase, you know, out of nowhere at, at one point or another. And I... That would have been so much more interesting and fun if you put those three idiots traveling through time to get back to wherever the central core thing was because, you know, Ellie's there. That's the whole point. And so they can unhook it from its power source. I mean, even House 2, the second story, which did basically this same thing, uh, at least they had them walk, like, into the world that, uh, you know, that they were supposed to go to. They... They didn't like necessarily bring the world to the the guys, but the guys like went to the world, and then you had some you know like a Neanderthal coming breaking out and like terrorizing them in the real world because 
essentially you go it's like passing through a doorway and I don't know why they couldn't have had the money to do that unless they just didn't think about that what's neat is that they go from again Neanderthal man to like Cleopatra uh, gladiator stuff to then we flash way forward to mutant people (laughs) and then we go to Vietnam and uh the Vietnam part was fun because that again ties back to how it feels like Commando the video game and it was also cool to see an uncredited Al Leong there the famous uh, Asian Asian American uh, the bald headed guy with the stringy long hair and the mustache that's him action movie fans will know him as one of the goons that chased Bruce Willis around in Die Hard. He's the person that tried to electrocute Mel Gibson and Lethal Weapon, among other things. He He's was been in, in a uh, million things. He was in Bill and Ted. Wasn't he Genghis yeah. Khan in Bill and Ted? He was, yes. He was in that. He's, he was on 24 for a while. I saw him show up on that. I, yeah, that guy, you know the face when you see him. And, uh, again, usually, again, playing, like, some member of the Chinese Red Triangle. Definitely a guy that got around and that you will, if you see him in this, you're like, oh, it's that guy. Because, so I know why they've got the Vietnam thing there. It's because we got to weaponize these guys for things that they can theoretically learn how to use, like the mutant guns. They probably wouldn't know how to work. And the sword that they use to kill, or Mike uses to kill the gladiator, he leaves stuck in him. So they, they don't really have anything that they can, you know, do any battle with along the way so they save a pilot that looks like he was downed and the Viet Cong are coming to get him and they get into a firefight with him and these three high school guys just totally whack the entire patrol from uh, Vietnam I mean you talk about like an American dream of uh, well you know even our useless children would be able to take out the Viet Cong even though that we were we were not very good against them with our children well, you know, there's a difference between fighting on their turf and fighting on your turf, I guess. Plus, yeah, but their Mike turf probably, was in their turf. Like that's the oh, problem. That's true. <laughs> Actually, where they probably are is in like the reason why I think it became Vietnam was because of uh, Mr. Roberts. Oh yes, yeah, that was his time. Yeah, he it was his time. He was an anti-war protester. He probably got drafted, mm-hmm. or you know, went to Canada for a while. Um. So I can't help but feel like that's kind of a tie-in to, like, you know, that's one of the places uh, uh, Mr. Roberts went to when he started to travel through space and time, because he did go back to the 60s. Yes, as he will proclaim so profoundly at the end of this. You know, you just brought up something that would have been such an interesting idea. What if everything that happened in the time warp? was like from Bob, from his memories and stuff. Some of this, all this other random crap you could have never explained, including what we're coming to in the gym. But it, I don't know, that would have been much more interesting to me. Like if, if he had actually been a character and you knew anything about him, then you, the guys ultimately realized like we're walking through like Bob's time travel nightmares or something like that. That would have been fun. Well, Bob does say that he goes back to like the beginning of time. When he's, mm-hmm. Or he can feel it, at least in the classroom, yeah. Yeah, so maybe that's that actually is what they were going for. But I, I really think they could have just, you know, ditched his Easy Rider outfit for a, you know, a secondhand uh, army coat uh, in the olive drab and, and just, you know, called it a... And, and tied it back even more, you know, officially... It could have, but what it leads him to is the big showdown in the gym where the Tyrannosaurus Rex comes out of the wall, eats the basketball goal, and then almost eats Vinny. 
and I was rooting for the T Rex. I'm just gonna go. Yeah, really, really missed opportunity there to to, to to turn this thing into Tammy and the T Rex, <laughs> or at least what the T Rex does to the lawyer in Jurassic Park that everybody's been made to hate at that point. Like, I mean, I mean, even the even the Carnosaur and Carnosaur kills people. Yes, right. Boy, this thing did have a little carnosaur moving around on it, though, didn't it? I, yes. I mean, I know Rick Baker worked on it. It wasn't him. It was other you know, puppeteers and stuff, but he had he was a consultant for the T-Rex. I don't know what that means other than, does that look okay, Rick? Yeah, that'll be $5,000, you know, or whatever. But um, it's, it's an interesting thing. I also wonder if one M40 grenade would do that kind of damage to a Tyrannosaur, but... Sure, movie. We'll go with it. I mean, uh, you know, who knows? I, I, I kind of doubt it. I'm, I'm with you on that skepticism there because it's. I mean, this thing's supposed to like fight brontosauruses and, or you know, triceratops or stegosaurus or whatever, you know, megafauna is around at its time. I don't know anything about any of that crap, but um, <laughs> it, it's clearly designed to handle things that are essentially walking tanks. So I I think it would take a little bit more than that. Maybe they should have found, like, uh, Jane Fonda's anti-aircraft gun. There you go. And they could have just tilted it down and (laughs) blew the thing into a thousand pieces. That would have worked. Or, or again, they grab one of the mutant guns and they vaporize the thing. Like, I would have bought that, you know, because those guys, that's what I love about the mutants is they don't give up. Like, they shoot a couple of them, they just circle around and they're chasing these assholes all through the high school. They, they're going through the time warp with them. They, they are going to get blood from those high school kids. Even at the end, Sherman and, and Vinny are fighting them off at the science lab. <laughs> Yeah, that was a uh, that was a fun uh, callback. I appreciated the uh, super mutants. Yeah, they were not. They did not want to quit at all. Uh, but we get to the finale in the lab now, where I, I'm with you, man. The the I don't know house on haunted hill fog thing that, that thing is created there uh, was was fun, and it felt like I was watching again the end of the Blob or, or one of those kind of movies, the end of the thing where the giant carrot needs to get electrocuted. Spoiler alert, you know, or or whatever, so that they can make that work. And I, I want to ask you though, because what happens is Mike, there's this whole sequence of things you have to do to turn the thing on and off. Mike finds like the buttons and he pulls out the wings and he shuts it back together, kind of like you're putting a car together. And it turns it on and turns it off. And he's unhooked it from the power source at this point. But at that point, that don't matter no more. This thing's got, it's, it's going to Wi-Fi. It's got its own power. And he's over there working it and closing it back together. And, of course, it starts warping and sucking all this stuff up with it, including him, only to redeposit him, Annie M style, you know, a couple of seconds later. I, why did it bring him back? Like, did it judge? Him? Did the engine judge him worthy? And if so, why does the engine think for itself? I, I needed, I needed some answer to that along the way. Like, because the movie had not earned enough for me to just go like, oh yeah, it would just send him back. Like, you know, the fish spitting Jonah back up. I mean, if they had some sort of, uh, I mean, if Sherman's there and he's clearly Johnny Exposition for this thing. I mean, he's showing these guys how to use an M sixteen, mm-hmm. uh, how to you know that you got to pull the charging rod and all that stuff. Um, my question is, why didn't Sherman say something? He could have thrown out one line that had been like, oh, it must have some sort of anti-paradox protection uh, to it, so everything gets returned to its proper time at the proper time. 
Yeah, because Bob does come back a little bit later too. So sure, yeah, that that would have been perfect. Thank you. You just fixed the movie, uh, but too bad none of them did. But. You're welcome, Disney. When you put it on Disney Plus, I, I expect a writing credit for that. <laughs> that well, I'm gonna tell you right now, Vinny is the reason this ain't ever going on Disney Plus, man. <laughs> like, there ain't no way. <laughs> so. All right. So in that scene where we see Vinny's uh, terrifying car, the the syphilis mobile. Uh, <laughs> Is it implied that he's having sex with that girl? Yes. With Cindy oh, okay. Lopper? Yeah. yeah. Cindy Lopper? Yeah. Yeah. They're okay. having sex That's in the a car horrible with. Thought. Yeah, yeah. It is almost as horrible as the little thing he's got to shoot up out of his uh, trunk when uh, somebody's honking at him from behind. That just made me laugh because it, it looked like a, <laughs> one of those uh, underlit black light things that. Uh, with the carved, uh, <laughs> like the carved plastic that's etched, it just says like the Beatles or something. I mean, he's got like a disco ball in that car. I don't know what that car is, but it, it yeah, he has got. Uh, it's it's full of uh, the kinds of things that the next owner will never. Like you just trash it and move on. That's all you do with that. By, by so. the kind of things that the next owner will have to trash it, do you mean crabs? <laughs> yeah, and even then, like you might want to be careful where you stick it in your junkyard. Uh, make sure nobody gets cut while they're moving the piece of metal. <laughs> so at that point, yeah, maybe they sent it off to whatever Superman was doing at the end of Superman three, and they let him crush it down with Richard Pryor at the end of that piece of shit movie too. I just figured they'd roll it out to that military graveyard and leave it next to the spaceship. Right. Yeah. And then the space. Yeah. Well, see, there we go. That was part two. Vinny's revenge is that the gizmo gets a hold of Vinny's car, and then all hell breaks loose. <laughs> Thankfully, the budget didn't allow for that. We do get Dennis Hopper to come back, like you say, in Easy Rider gear, uh, wearing a terrible wig, uh, telling Richard Bazard that he's a pig and that he doesn't want to do anything with him. And he talks about how he's, you know, he's traveled all this stuff. He's like, okay, I'm going to give you an A on science projects since I'm out of jail. And, uh, but you got to get rid of it. The world's not ready for it at this point. And he drops a line that when I was rewatching this, this afternoon, Rod, to, for, for this review to make sure I got it. Cause I watched this thing three times to just make sure I had this movie down for this time. Cause it'd been so long since I'd rewatched it. He talks about how, man, I made sure the future was cool y'all. And I was like, if you're responsible for 2020, fuck you, Bob Roberts. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't think you did such a good job. I mean, also, who knows that those kids might have saved, like, John McCain and completely changed, like, the course of, of uh, you know, American history. Maybe that was it. Who who knows what has happened? This movie's not smart enough to you know, for us to ask those kind of questions about it. It doesn't want us to think about that. It just wants us to be happy that Mike and Ellie are together. And then we get we get the tubes song, which I gotta say is it doesn't make any sense. Like clearly, this guy's just tried to write a song and work the words "my science project" into it. But the way that like they incorporate the sound effects of the gizmo in their whole synthesizer loop of that song is pretty nice. I was impressed with that. For an 80s band, I was like, that wasn't something you could just do nowadays. That's a computer effect and you do it in 20 seconds. That would have taken hours in the studio to figure out how to do it. I'm like, that that's pretty good. That, this movie doesn't deserve something that cool. Yeah, that was pretty cool. I mean, this is just another reminder that the 80s were the glory days of a lot of things. Um, Italian stereotypes, uh, having a nerd friend and uh, having interesting uh, soundtrack songs 
like that yeah, pop, say the title of the movie. Yeah, pop music that says the title of your movie. But was it worth all of it, Ron? It's time for final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So as we wrap up going back to school here, what are yours for my science project? Well, there's a lot to dis- dislike about the movie, quite frankly. Um, it 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 does slow down quite a bit in the middle. Um, the Vietnam uh, trick through the school feels like it's like two scenes too long to me. Uh, Fisher Stevens uh, uh, again doing Fisher Stevens things in a bad way. Uh, not enough Dennis Hopper. If you're gonna have him, have him for like three days of shooting, not just one. Uh, give him a little something to do. Maybe tie. Give us some little explanation. No matter how pointless and, and contrived it is, at least try. Uh, that said, this weird movie is still pretty fun. There's a lot of strange things that make it worth talking about. Make it worth watching at least once or twice. So if you haven't seen it, it's free on YouTube. Disney's never going to claim it because of because <laughs> you can't just CGI some shorts on Vinny and make him acceptable uh, the whole character's got to be CGI'd out <laughs> um, but uh, I'd give it a medium popcorn I still had a, I had a weird time but uh, I watched it more than once and uh, not just because I had difficulty remembering it the first time which I did but uh, enough of it stuck with me to uh make it worth checking out at least once or twice I mean I feel like over the last hour we have nitpicked and I particularly have nitpicked the hell out of this movie because I've seen it so many times Ron (laughs) over the last 35 years that I can do that and I hadn't seen this movie in probably four or five good years before we got ready to do it and like I said I watched it three times for this and even when it slows down and it's kind of you know just doing what it's doing I can walk away from it and just let it be in the background and come back because there's enough here that it's still fun I mean it's dumb it's dumb as hell but it's still fun and I have a fun time watching it it transports me back to a childhood when I would believe shit like this could happen and would go with it and so for that, I, I give it a little more credit than it's, it's better than it deserves to be for its budget limitations and its actor limitations and, you know, some of the script problems. And, you know, I, I definitely feel like it falls in the medium popcorn. Like it's, it's a small popcorn idea, but it achieves medium status in the fact that you can watch it. You can watch it over and over, and it is fun. And so, uh, yeah, definitely a medium popcorn and a fun one to revisit. And I'm glad I got to introduce it to you. It's very rare I could bring something like this. It, this is in your genre's wheelhouse that you haven't seen. And so I, I felt like I've accomplished something real now in my life. I mean, if, if it had been a Golden Globus movie instead of a Touchstone movie, I would have probably already seen it by now. <laughs> Do you know how much more awesome this movie would be if it was a Golden Globus movie? Holy well, God, there'd be five of them, too. If it was a Golden Globus movie, there would have been five of them because it made $3 million. Yeah. Um, the dinosaur would have exploded. Um, there would have been at least one topless person. Chuck Norris would have been the teacher. Well, the, either Chuck Norris would have been the teacher or they would have t- traveled, time traveled back to feudal Japan and gotten Shokasugi. That would have worked, too. So. <laughs> you know... Uh, Michael Dudikoff could have played the teacher. No, Michael Dudikoff would have been. No, Michael Dudikoff been, could have been the cop, arrest oh, the teacher. That would have been my even thought better. Was the cop would be Franco Nero, and they would just dub him. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that would also work because <laughs> he had that great mustache. 
Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He still does. Uh, he see he, all of his roles are known for that stash. But uh, yeah, this one I want to ask you though about this because everything in the world, particularly anything owned by Disney, <laughs> gets a another pass at some point. Could you see any way they would ever go back try to remake this in a modern audience? Could you see there's any any place to jump off from, or is it just such a time capsule that it can't work? If you take the the basic idea of of some high schoolers traveling through time, you could definitely make like a ten episode uh, Disney Plus original series out of this thing. Because the idea itself is fun, and there's mm-hmm. enough fun sequences in there, and you've got some pretty well defined characters. Maybe you you definitely dial Vinny back a little bit, but you, you know Mike's a pretty acceptably bland hero. Um, I, I believe the. Uh, yeah, you said it was he was what CW worthy. Yeah, CW worthy. Yeah, yeah, I could definitely see this guy doing a straight to uh, or a guy of this type being the lead on like a you know a, a modest budgeted uh, you know straight to digital thing. I mean, if they could make a, a Karate Kid follow up movie thirty years later, they could definitely do figure out how to work this into um, this concept into you know. Uh, a Stranger Things type. Yeah, that Cobra Kai show rules, by the way. Uh, and I'm glad you. I'm glad you dropped the Stranger. Th- I'm pretty sure the Stranger Things guys have seen this movie because they've. There's been several things that have been dropped over their first few seasons that are very my science project. Like they, they clearly watch this as at least half the times that they watched Weird Science and all the other crap that they're constantly riffing off of. So yeah, it, I I can see it, but I always feel like this one and Flight of the Navigator are two things from Disney's 80s that they just didn't know what to do with and they've never known what to do with and they just kind of exist as their own little bubbles. And I, I really liked, I liked Flight, Flight of the Navigator quite a lot uh, back in the day. That was the one I watched instead of this one, that and Short Circuit 2. <laughs> who, who doesn't love uh, a, a graffiti robot? Uh, Johnny Five, still alive. Speaking gay. <laughs> Of course, right? I don't know. I, just, I feel like there is something here. I don't know if they if they would ever reference it or not, because who would know what it was other than us and you know the few people that ever watched this movie? But uh, I do think it's funny that yes, and and when Ron says it's free on YouTube, it's not one of YouTube's free with ads. Somebody just loaded it on YouTube, and nobody's taking it down. And I'm pretty sure you and I are half the views that channel's got this week, and uh, you know nobody cares. So this movie has like six million views on YouTube. Yeah, it's a, like 6.3 million people have watched this movie on YouTube. And that YouTube stream has been up for like eight years. So there, there's some kind of audience for this that's more than just us. Yeah, which is why we talked about it as part of this retrospective. So been a lot of fun walking back through it with you. Ron, tell folks what you've got going on writing over at Den of Geek. I'm working on Nosferatu, the AMC show based off of the uh, bestseller Joe Hill book. I'm working on, I will have probably just finished up, by the time this comes up, I will have finished up uh, Snowpiercer, based on the Bong Joon-ho movie, uh, and I will be transitioning into whatever I'm going to be doing in the fall, I don't know, uh, I'm not sure what's going to come out at this point, who even knows, They're, they still haven't finished, uh, as the time of our recording, they still haven't finished the one episode of The Walking Dead that remains, and they definitely haven't started filming Fear the Walking Dead yet, and they're sitting on Walking Dead World Beyond, which 
are three things that I would be doing in the fall normally. Who knows if there's going to be another season of American Horror Story. Uh, so, you know, uh, the world is, is slowly reopening as we record this, but not enough for me to figure out what in the world I'm going to be doing, you know, tomorrow, let alone three months from now. <laughs> But everybody can follow you over at Den of Geek and then at Hollywood Ron on Twitter as well. Folks, you can find the archives of this podcast in your podcast feed or on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. Please leave us a positive review uh, wherever you find the show. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at filmstrippod and search for Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook to connect with us there. We appreciate it if you share the show and we thank you for your support. So again, welcome back. Hope you're back in school. We did these uh, in here in September thinking, okay, maybe people are going back to school. That's a huge presumption too but hope you've enjoyed that for Rod I'm Jay thank you for listening to Filmstrip thank you for listening to Filmstrip you can find more episodes on our website filmstrippodcast.com the Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121 all content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.